Attach, you lose. Detach, you gain. That simple phrase and along with the phrase yoga for the intellect, on a little pamphlet in a hotel in Southern California, while I was there with my wife for a weekend, lured me into a session with a guy that looked like one of those guys at the airports with their kind of monk garb, a few possessions, maybe some wooden beads. And, and that's what I was looking at on this pamphlet this resort of all places with the phrase yoga for the intellect and the phrase attach you lose detach you gain so much of me wanted to dismiss this as kind of a socal woo woo thing but i was i was really intrigued by this phrase yoga for the intellect kind of discipline or exercise for the mind and was so intrigued that I ended up going to this seminar and my wife and I were the only ones there. And we got to meet this guy, Joseph Emmett, who is for all intents and purposes, a modern day monk, but from Texas of all places where we're from. And we got to chatting and he actually is cousins with someone that we knew, one of my wife's friends. And it obviously begged the conversation of, okay, so how did you grow up in Houston, Texas, of all places, when, and found out he grew up in D.C. for much of his life and find himself as a, as a monk following a Indian philosophy. And I use the word philosophy because it's very different than um, what we would call a religion uh, because it is really like a school of thought. And the school of thought that we learned about that day was Vedanta, this 5,000-year-old uh, ancient school of thought that is sits as, as the source of, of Hinduism and Hinduism being the source of Buddhism and, and Zen Buddhism. So all of these Eastern philosophies go back to this, this kind of source of Vedanta. So we got chatting with this guy, Joseph, and it was so fascinating because as a creator, as a builder, there were so many things that he would articulate that I knew deep down, but I had never articulated things like that concept of whatever you're attached to, that attachment actually repels it from you. And whatever you're attached to causes you to actually cling to it so tightly, like holding something you love in your hands too tightly and actually restricting it. It was just an entire afternoon filled with these very simple explanations of simple concepts that were just deep beneath so many other thoughts and things that had gone through my mind for years and years prior. Loved it so much that I uh, stayed in touch with Joseph. And when I started to think about the, the concept of the podcast and following the mental journey of, of creation and thinking about things that have caused me so much stress in life, as well as thoughts and, and practices that have, that have really unwound so much stress, I immediately thought of Joseph, who is the most carefree, stress-free individual, and it's not an act. He genuinely actually is. And after 20 years of him following this, this school of, of thought and, and practicing this philosophy daily, it, it was only fitting to have him on the podcast to talk a little bit about what he, he practices and what he 
believes is is the key to to living uh, a full and really stress-free life. So be forewarned, this conversation is unabashedly philosophical. And and that's kind of uh that's kind of what makes Joseph so interesting. So let's get into it. Below the line is brought to you by Playcast Media. It is the simplest way to set up a professional premium podcast from your home or office. Go to playcastmedia.com and get their premium podcast in a box delivered right to you. Everything you need saved me months and months of trial and error. I probably bought the wrong equipment three times over the course of a year and a half of thinking of doing a podcast before I got it right with Playcast. Basically one click to buy and boom, you're clicking record. It's that simple. If you want all of the equipment, all of the info and setting it up, everything you need in one simple kit, Playcast Media is the place to go. I've never sounded better in my entire life. And I usually hate my voice, but I love it with, uh, well, I don't know if I love it, but I can stand it with Playcast. Let's put it that way. Having a professional sound studio in your home or office has never been easier or more straightforward than with Playcast. Check them out, playcastmedia.com and tell them James sent you. So let's get into it, Joseph. Johnny, kick it with the music. This is Below the Line. Joseph? Hello, James. How are you, sir? I am doing good. And uh, are you drinking anything right now? As we do this, this interview remotely, and listeners, forgive us if there are any issues with uh, with our uh, technology during this episode. I am not quite good at these remote episodes yet, but I am. Uh, I'm hopeful that this one will be worth worth all of the the trials uh, to to bring you a digital rendering of of Joseph. Um, yeah, what are you drinking right now? I am having a cup of black Ceylon tea from my mother's cupboard, uh, which my dad likes to keep around at his house. And um, yeah, my parents just left uh, for a trip to Paris, and I'm uh, utilizing their, their dining room table here and drinking their tea to talk to you. Oh, nice. And yeah. uh, I'm also drinking some black tea. That you gave me the heads up on what you wanted to drink during this episode, so that's that is what we're sharing. Um, and where are you right now? Uh, yeah, so uh, I'm at my folks' place in Houston, Texas, um, and uh, we live about uh, 25 miles south of here in Sugarland. Um, but I often come to my parents' house uh, during the day, um, and uh, that's what's happening today. Well, we'll get into a guy from Texas moving around the world uh, to India to to study to study a um, an ancient philosophy here in a little bit um, and the story behind that. But one of the things that I, I'm so eager to ask you is a question you told me one time that you like to ask people when you're wearing the uh, the monk garb at an airport or or yeah. you know, sitting in an airplane you like to yeah. ask people what is your world view and yeah. uh, I am so interested to hear you tell me the answer to to that question for you what just what is your world view 
Well, before I get into it, um, I should say that it's actually more fun when I'm not wearing the uniform right. um, because that kind of, you know, gives it away. And, and um, it's and it's usually on a long on a long flight, um, you know, after five or six hours sitting next to someone, you eventually start talking and saying, you know, so what do you do and, and all that. And um, it's actually something I picked up from a professor. 25 years ago. Um, and I, I always ask, well, you know, I say I'm a worldview analyst and people say, well, what is that? And, and that gets to the conversation of, well, what is your worldview? When you wake up in the morning and you throw your feet out of the bed and stand up, you, you're experiencing something. And, and, you know, what do you reckon that is? Um, it's fun. It's really fun. And, and, um, as a, um, a much better conversationalist than me. I know that you would uh, you would really appreciate that the responses um, are sometimes uh, as if a, f a person has never thought of it, which is always really interesting. Um, sometimes the response is some Campbell soup can worldview that a person was given when they were ten years old, and just hold on to it and and kind of feed it to you. And um, another time uh, could be I, I'm taking notes. I mean, someone who you would never suspect um, sitting there in business casual like me or, or whatever, uh, it drops, you know, amazing, um, profound thoughts. So it, it's always a really um, good conversation. Do you remember what was the most profound answer to that question that, that you can recall? Were you ever blown back, blown back by any? Um, yeah, the, I mean, one that specific one is um, a, a gentleman who um, who sat down next to me, and I actually offended him, sort of, not really. In quotes, I had seen this this sort of this elderly traveling group in the Delhi airport, and and uh, this man sat down next to me, and I assumed that um, he uh, was part of the group. So I was like, oh, so where were you all going? You know. And he was like, well, what do you mean, all of us? And I said, well, aren't you with the traveling group? And he's like, why do you think I'm an old man? You know, it's funny. It started <laughs> off like that. And um, it ended up being one of those conversations where, um, you know, 15 hours later, we land in Newark, and we hadn't even told each other our names yet. And we'd just been talking in, in for the whole time. Oh, cool. And um, he um, he was basically saying that the, the world is is governed by subjective laws of life and living, um, just as it as the external nature is is governed by um, external laws. And and then he he went into this just profound um, uh, recitation of basically from the ancient Greeks and, and really early thinkers about what these laws of life are, which is of course very similar to Vedanta and what, what we do and study, um, which we call it Sanatana Dharma, which is eternal principles that govern life. And um, yeah, so w what he was talking about was, was just um, amazing to me. He was much more talking from a, a classical Western point of view, but to, to see all of the similarities in, in, in the truth. And, and of course, as we know, the, the truth is one and sages call it by various names. 
So that's one. But I mean, there have been many where I kind of remember the person and the vibe more than I do the specific philosophy. But that one was amazing. And um, and that that man led on to some really great things in our work. And it was, it was just a really memorable one. Where was, can I ask where he was from, if you remember? I do. So he, um, he is, um, he runs the, the, um, or ran the, uh, the Henry Crown Fellows Program at the Aspen Institute. Um, and, uh, I mean, he just happened to sit next to me on the plane and, and, uh, his name is Keith Berwick and he's been been waiting for that question his whole life. No, but he gets it. But the reason he had so much answers, because he's a great, very highly regarded teacher for, you know, leaders and CEOs around the world. And, and, um, if Keith, if you're listening, hello, um, and, uh, I'll definitely send him this, but, um, yeah, so Keith is uh he he's been running that that program at the Aspen Institute. Basically, they they handpick leaders to come and bathe in in the eternal principles of life. Like I said, from a he does a lot of Plato and Aristotle and and um, these classical Western thinkers to kind of bring out these these deeper tenets that govern our lives. And um, he ended up uh, getting Vedanta Treatise, uh, which is uh, Swami's book, which I know that you're that you have and um and he called me and said this is great we'd love to have swami and that ended up with uh swamiji being at the uh, aspen ideas festival in 2008 um which was a really amazing uh, experience so so that one always strikes me as one of the more um remarkable um uh airplane conversations yeah well in the aspen institute is um what an institution that is such a, a, and that's a cool turn of events for for Swamiji to get invited there. I won't, I want to touch into, I want to get into Vedanta Treatise. And by the way, just in general, ever since my intro episode where I talk about um, the why and and what of this podcast, uh, people and I and I mentioned my interest in in Vedanta. I'd say I'm I'm heavily influenced by. At least my modes of thinking are influenced by probably equal parts Western and and I mean, actually probably 80, 20 Western and but the twenty percent that's Eastern, uh, I you know, not many people had know what Vedanta is, and we're gonna get into that um as well. But real quick, uh, in turn in, in terms of the eternal principles of the West and the East um that you're just talking about, can you compare and contrast um the two sides of of philosophical thought in you know in a very high level way but what would you say if you and keith are sitting next to each other where you would have common ground or uh, between western and eastern philosophies and where there would be potential departures from one another uh yeah well i mean um Keith is 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 a a wizard and (laughs) i'm sure he's fully versed in in both east and west um but i just know that the west western thing is more of his tool you know his 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 particular tool of choice um but yeah the western world uh, the western philosophies i think are excellent in ethics and morality and personal freedoms and democracy and all of these concepts that have to do with life in the world mm-hmm. whereas whereas eastern um uh vedantic uh, uh based philosophies um, tend to not be as limited to just the world and this this waking state of consciousness that we experience. It it, it takes into account much more deeply the dream state of consciousness 
and the deep sleep state of consciousness. And of course, the, the fourth state of consciousness, which is called Turiya, um, which is spiritual enlightenment, which is about transcending this limited um, uh, waking state. That, in that way, it's, it's, um, it seems to be a much more comprehensive um, uh, Interesting. set so of ideas. Would, yeah. W this is a total generalization uh, from a, um, a noob and myself, but would you say it's kind of, it's kind of the Western side of things is rearranging the world around us and, and, uh, and kind of maybe collectively transcending by rearranging the world around us? And seeing it properly versus an Eastern or, and, and for listeners, uh, Vedanta, the, the adage is that, uh, Hinduism is, uh, or Buddhism is Hinduism made for export as it moved from India to China, <laughs> China to Japan. And, and Hinduism is, uh, largely based on, on Vedantic principles and, and Vedanta, um, predates Hinduism and, uh, and in many ways, it's kind of a source text for for Eastern philosophies in many ways. And so when thinking about the two, I, when you say kind of transcend, a transcendent fourth state, um, is that kind of moving beyond this rearrangement of the world around you, but kind of a rearrangement of the world, um, I guess for lack of better words, within you towards a fourth state? Yeah, it's... it's um it's not just about life in the world. It's about something, a higher state beyond this, uh, this state of existence. In that book, Vedanta Treatise, I, I'm sure you remember, there's a point where one of the, there's a number of Western philosophers that are quoted who, who are actually doing this differentiation. Um, uh, I forget, uh, Schopenhauer and Schiller and a few of these guys. It, one of them calls... Uh, Western philosophy, a dwarfish pygmy in the presence of a majestic titan <laughs> when, he when he talks about Vedanta. Well, so it's, uh, it's are, kind of funny. I, I don't remember which guy that is offhand, but um, it's them saying it um, directly. Um, it is, yeah. it is um, you know, it really has only been in the last hundred or so years that a mainstream audience can consume both um in yeah in this yeah. type of way and so it is a it's a unique time where there is this um union between them that can happen and and you know someone that just wants to read about both or you look it up on online and kind of have uh a comparison of perspectives right next to each other and, and you know in your spare time it's pretty pretty remarkable and i'd say uh swamiji's book is and is i think he has nine or ten so there's several of them they're, they're really great i have not read them all but it's a great mm -hmm. place to start but i know that we could spend a lot of time on the com the comparison uh angle and that's i think that's not a great use of um not a great use of time for this for this conversation with you i'd love to know a little bit more about you and your your journey to this um and maybe it's maybe it's a part of one of the questions that i ask uh people um, I am so excited about your answers to this question because you are, yes, you might be sitting in Houston, Texas in a living room that I can um, envision easily, but um, from Houston to growing up there to the Houston or the version of you that's sitting there right now, I know a lot has changed. Um, 
What are three stories that have helped shape who you've who you've become? Right. Um, well, uh, being a fan of the podcast as I am, um, I uh, turned on your recent one with uh, Peter. Right? Is is his name uh, the yep. coach? Your coach, yeah, Peter Carnegie. Yeah, right? I listened to the first twenty minutes of um, of. Peter talking and I was just, I was laughing because obviously I've thought about, you know, what would I say to James when he asked for three stories? <clears throat> and, um, the first one, I, it was almost, uh, uncanny what Peter was saying. And it's great because it, it sort of, it's, it's always good to know that, um, that you're not the only person who's done something or had a thought in life. And we're probably, um, you know, there's nothing new under the sun. <laughs> so mm -hmm. it's, it's great. And, uh, and so I'll start with my first story, which is, is, is really a love of a question, um, which is what was there before the universe? Mm. And uh, this is, you know, I remember being 10, 11, 12 years old. For some reason, I always think about that age. I don't know. It could have been earlier, but we were living out in the country um, in Round Rock, Texas, before Dell was there. So it's, it was really proper country. And um, uh, I don't know. I just associate that time of life with, with this thought a lot. I had a really long bus ride in the morning and uh, um, I I used to be outside a lot and I, I would ask this question, you know, what was there before the universe? And, uh, and how, how old were you when you started? I, I, asking I, I think, yeah, about, you know, 10, 11, somewhere in there. Interesting. And, and this question, uh, what, what, what's interesting about it. And the reason I, I, I bring it up as, as a crucial story of, of something shaping me is because I wasn't sitting there like banging my head, trying to get an answer. That's not what was going on. I, I love the question. The, the question put me into some sort of a, a position that I liked, I, I, that I enjoyed, that was very calm and simple. It was a simple, still, calm state of mind because, of course, there's no answer, right? But at the time, um, it, it's like a koan, you know? So, um, and, and then I know I began to notice that you know certain environments and certain times of life uh, would kind of allow me to access that question. And then it also became not just a question, but what was there before the universe? And if there if there's something before the universe, where was I? And who am I? And and what about me uh, exists? Uh, irrespective of a universe. Because for one thing that I just could not get my, that I could never arrive at was um, to completely negate existence, to completely negate the, the isness. Um, so as, as Peter said, I was laughing, he said, even that nothing is something, you know? And uh, I mean, mm -hmm. honestly, back to the worldview, what is my worldview question? One of my favorite answers is that nothing is something. <laughs> So and you're yeah. going to have to explain that to, to me, but tell me more. Well, I mean, you know, um, one, the isness is not something that we can negate. I mean, you can't get around 
the isness, the fact that things is. I'm saying it that way on purpose, right? Mm-hmm. Including us. And it's it's impossible that you can negate your own existence. Uh, you may conceptually do it, but in the deepest heart of your heart, uh, in your the, the core of yourself, you are that pure, existent, eternal, infinite principle, which may seem, from our point of view, like nothing. But as Peter so beautifully said uh, this morning on the podcast when I was listening, he said, that nothing is something. And it's absolutely true. And, and so it, it, that question kind of more from what was there before the universe to what is it that exists? What is existence? How is it that things exist in the first place? Why is there something in the first place? Whereas there could have just as easily been nothing, um, which again, Peter referred to Heidegger and it's amazing. I was, it's exactly, uh, uh, what was such a crucial um, thought flow for me? What is that very existent um, principle? And and do you mind telling so then, me uh, telling me yeah. a little bit more um, about uh, about that and or the color around Heidegger uh, as a philosopher? Yeah, I mean, okay, Heidegger and his uh, that all that I I know enough to know I I don't know anything about him. Uh, I have a good friend who did a study of Heidegger, and I remember reading his papers and having my head spin. But his his basic question was, you know, why should things exist versus not? Mm-hmm. And um, I don't, I, I wouldn't even attempt an answer, James. But um, but it, it's a profound question, and and the fact is, there had to be an isness for things to be. So actually, I'll tell you, um, this might so, help. So is it kind of saying there's we look around and and we we obviously see that something is ising something is 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 here um and to try to imagine yeah nothing before it is still a version of of something um if if for nothing else the cradle for which something can absolutely can come from um and therefore is uh like a cradle is something um, am I following it? Yeah, it's it's like pure it's pure potentiality, you know. Um, it's it's total fullness, complete fullness before anything came to be. Uh, and, and you know, and I'm gonna and I'm gonna put I'm gonna put this in the intro for this episode. By the uh, way, that we are uh, unabashedly, you know, it's not uh, the phrase. Oh, it's you know, getting too philosophical. We are going to get unabashedly philosophical yeah. in this conversation. We should. We should. Um, That's what it is. We absolutely and, should. And, you know, the, um, the later on, there were so many things in life that sort of corroborated this for me and kind of reinforced it and and um, shed new light on it. And by it, and, and by it, do you mean just the, the, the love of the question? Yeah, yeah, and that that particular direction of thought into that, whatever that isness is, um, and um, in me or in everything and, and, and what it is. And, and, you know, the I read somewhere that the, the, someone called it the plenum void. I love that. You know, the, the plenum, plenum means full, you know, the full void. Mm-hmm. What a concept, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? The absolutely full nothingness. It's well, incredible. In, in what's going through my mind is in music, you, you, the, the spaces between the notes are just as important as the notes themselves. 
and it's the, that nothingness the nothingness before you hear the first notes the nothingness in between the notes they are strategically and, and critically important um, for the notes to have their to actually have their uh, intended impact and and you can't disconnect them if you jammed all the notes together it'd be uh, cacophonous um, and and not only not only between and before and after but during the notes mm. also that silence is there which is the support of it the entire thing yeah. the absence Th- of other that notes. is the changeless yeah that is the changeless isness that changeless substratum uh at the base of everything and it is um you can't even say it's one in, in Vedanta, the, the full description of Vedanta is actually Advaita Vedanta. Advaita means non-dual. So it's the Advaita Vedanta is the study of the non-dual reality. So there's no, there's nothing other than that. But to say it's one it might it might give you an idea that it's like a giant sphere or something, you know? Mm-hmm. They, 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 they put it in the negative and they just say it's non-dual. There's nothing other than that. So just like the silence is before and during and after the music, it's it's underlying every note as well. Mm. And um, you know, uh, and by, and, and by yeah. the way, this is uh, I, I'm smiling because this this is also your answer or that this first story is indicative of this. Um, I love this stuff, and I think yeah. I love this stuff because I love similar maybe similarly to you i love the presence of the questions that may that it it is it has nothing to do with the answers but if uh, an audience if someone is listening and they require answers um then this is this is going to be extremely frustrating or or off-putting um but if yeah. you love the question and 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 love the fact that there are questions out there that do not have answers um but maybe inching towards the answers can still be just um a whole lot of fun then then that's that's where these conversations can uh can really uh come to life and become so enjoyable but if you're looking for closure these are uh i know at least for me um i have to shut that part of my brain that that you know desire for closure uh shut that part of the brain off and just be okay with this is going to be a revelation and how little i know uh, more so than an education on on what I can grasp and then utilize in the next hour of my life. Yeah, but okay. So I I diverted. So you're saying your the answer to your worldview is kind of in this uh, this story of uh, that shaped your life. Yeah, I mean, I think probably the whole discussion the the worldview is um, uh, is that 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 nothing is something that that at the core of our um personality there is the existent uh self as we call it in vedanta capital s and uh, our entire lives consciously or unconsciously are an attempt to move back towards that so in in a sense it's our original nature now, I didn't know all this in the first story, right? In the first story, I'm, I'm 12 years old. I'm just enjoying uh, putting my head into that thought space because the thing is, it's by nature uh, singular. So it's, it's a naturally calming, 
um, still point that you reach in your mind just by thinking about this, as you say, answerless question, right? So it was just an exercise that I enjoyed. I, I, and, and it wasn't just, you know, sitting around. I, I used to play, um, you know, a lot of tennis with my father. My, my dad was amazing and he still is, but he was amazing in that, uh, he would spend so much time. Somehow he would come home in the afternoons at, and play tennis with me a lot. And, and, um, you know, I remember those, those times, you know, surrounded by the fences of a tennis court where the world is sort of shut off and I'm just playing a game, but the mind is sort of reveling in that, that thought or, or for that matter, riding in a car with my mother, just, you know, any sort of really safe space like that, where everything else is taken care of and you can kind of just drop into that, um, that thought. Um, certain right. environments do that or the long bus ride or the, the walk in the country by myself or, or whatever it is. Um, and it, it was more just, there wasn't necessarily as clear a statement as that nothing is something, but thinking about the very existent principle that's underlying creation, mm-hmm. whatever that is, whether it's full or void or whatever, um, it was both kind of my, uh, worldview and uh and i i guess you know uh, early practice though it was quite unconscious right well it's there's something to be said about you know this um it, it can feel tempting to think that you you want to be in control and that is that is um the ultimate place to be but oftentimes in our lives where we were where we were the most fulfilled or happiest or most peaceful is when we weren't in control. We didn't have to be in control. We were the the six year old in the back of of the car with your parents. Absolutely, you were yeah. absolutely taken care of and not needing uh, to be under this uh, kind of illusion of of a pretty a pretty juvenile delusion of con- this thing called control, which isn't um, attainable to to begin with. Um, sure. But the there is yeah there's something really um, profound there of of being able to ask a question that's so big that just says oh you don't need to find the answer or I don't need the answer uh, at all I think you know all of science is is essentially um, science is just predicting the future and or trying to control it and and I think that that is um, when I first heard that that perspective it totally blew my mind i thought it was just this this noble pursuit of of progress and mm-hmm. then you really look at any scientific endeavor was essentially one of those two things predict the future or control it and yeah. do a better job of that whereas the, these types of questions or this type of philosophy and i want to ask you why you didn't feel like something around you in houston texas could help answer uh, some of these questions but um but there is something, there is something uh, comforting I could see as a twelve-year-old or as a thirty-two-year-old to sit back and say, "Oh, I don't need to predict or control the future." Um, there are questions that are so big that remind me I don't need to be in control. That's really interesting. Yeah, I mean the 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 word ashram. I mean, we'll talk about the ashram, I'm sure, but the word ashram means refuge. So it's it's a place that is structured. And an, and an ashram in a way. is 
But what is an ashram for for listeners? An ashram is is an Indian monastery, um, basically, um, and uh, the ashram I study in under my teacher is called Vedanta Academy, and and the the idea of an ashram is to create a space where, as you say, um, of course you're safe, but beyond that, everything is as much of the worldly considerations as possible are removed. So there's a uniform and there's food and there's, there's, uh, you can walk to the exercise room and there's a yoga hall, you know, everything's done to liberate your mind, to be able to indulge in this higher thought that, uh, that we've been tr- trying to point at, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's really, it's, um, it's about, it, we call Vedanta a lot yoga for the intellect. Right. It's it's like you go to the mat to do your yoga every day for the sake of the yoga, for the sake of putting your yourself in that space physically and, and mentally. And and Vedanta is is is, is a, the systematic uh, disciplined effort to put your head onto the um, transcendental, the infinite, the eternal whatever you want to call it, um, as an exercise in itself. And, and what mm. that leads to and all is a bit a bigger discussion, but it's it's really about the, the exercise of getting into that that space. And and what most of us don't have in the world most of the time is thought space to consider these things, right? So um, you know, obviously when I had all the time in the world as a 12 year old, it was it was, you know, easier than being a person with responsibilities in the world. Which were, you know, um, made the ashram such a wonderful um, place for me when I eventually found myself there because I got to uh, sit in that higher thought and and more than that um, understand it uh, from uh, more about what what role it actually played in my life. But I don't know. Maybe I'm getting ahead of it. No, do well. Real logistical question: Do you have to pay to be a part of it? How do you? How does it uh, financially support itself? The ashram is a charitable organization in India. In fact, I think some large percentage of the students um, do not pay, and it, it's supported by people that want it to exist. Um, there is a, a suggested donation. At the time when I first went to the ashram in 97, uh, the suggested donation for three years of life and education and room and board and everything was $6,000, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> which I didn't have at the time and it didn't matter um but i mean think about that you know for three years of life yeah two thousand dollars i mean and and you can literally walk into that place with you know the clothes on your back and everything is taken care of if you're a person who wants to sit and reflect in a disciplined systematic way on on vedanta um it's it's for it's for seekers that that want that opportunity well if i ever go broke i'll uh, i'm glad to know that i have a, a refuge there where I'll just plead, of course. My, plead my case to make it make it free <laughs> uh, with my family. But um, the um, w- the backdrop of you asking these questions, I feel like I have to ask as a as someone as a Texan, um, a a white guy from Houston that um, that is going th- you know asking these questions. That I imagine if it's like where I grew up in Dallas, kind of waspy. You know, it is uh, heavily Protestant and and uh, and part of the Bible Belt. Um, what was did you were you already asking these of theological um, 
students of theological masters of of pastors priests religious figures or did you go straight to um eastern philosophy yeah well that's a good bridge i can um the second story will fit in here that i had in mind um so um yeah i mean that being said i was just a normal 13 year old um but we moved to dc uh in eighth grade and i went to high school in dc um which was definitely transformative uh in terms of a lot of different uh types of of people um which is always good for um questioning your your worldview um and shaking it up a bit um I one really uh, distinguishing point, and to answer your question directly, I I was I did grow up in the church. My parents are elders in the Presbyterian Church, um, and I always loved church. I always found church very um, safe, and I I had great thoughts there as well. Usually, um, and uh, yeah, I did I did ask a bit uh, of questions, um, but it, there was definitely something um, that I was looking for, but I didn't know that I was looking for, you know, uh, the moment, you know, what you're looking for, the the problem is half solved. So, um, I was, um, working at a coffee shop called Quartermain Coffee Roasters in Friendship Heights, uh, DC, um, in, in high school. And I was having this exact conversation with my manager, uh, Michael Spainer. And I haven't seen Michael Spainer since 1995. So again, Michael, if you're listening, hello and thank you. Mm-hmm. Uh, because Michael uh, was listening to me ramble on one day about uh, the the supreme being and the 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 fact that everything exists and that existence is and all that. And he said, um, "And how old were you uh, in 1995?" Yeah, by then I'm, I'm a senior in high school, so I'm okay. you know. 17 and where are you where are you borrowing this language of supreme being from yeah i i don't even know actually what words i would have been using then um but um i'm just i'm just saying those now because i know the language now um Mm. okay i'm not sure how i described it to him but i was talking to him about fascination with this thought and he goes, have you ever read, uh, he, no, he didn't even ask me. I remember he said, you must read this book. And he wrote down, uh, essays in Zen Buddhism by DT Suzuki. Yeah. And, um, I don't remember where I got it, but I can still see the cover is kind of these green and white, um, design DTS, the man, uh, the man. And I had no idea. And I was like, DT Suzuki, what? And you got to remember James, this is 1995, right? Like, you know, health food stores are still like in the, in like tucked away in small shopping centers and, you know, yoga is just like, there's a few yoga studios with like a neon light somewhere in the weird part of town. It, right. it was different and there's definitely no Google or anything. So a much simpler, slower time and definitely not the information that people have now. So I got this book and this was a crux point for me because until that, until I read that book, this reality was still this this being, this isness, this this thing that I, I love to think about was still like a thing. I was still thinking about it as you know 
a thing, a giant um, thing with qualities or whatever. Um, maybe that could be proved with an equation on the board. And when I read do, about do, when you say thing, yeah. do you mean like the concept of of our kind of uh, Western concept of God as thing? No, it wasn't in a God context. It was more just like a <clears throat> maybe more like a physics thing, like a unified field or something. You I know? see. As as part of the world, as it were. I, I don't know. I, I, it wasn't that formulated, obviously. And what Suzuki did um, in that book for me was. The moment I read about the concept of Satori, which is, which is the, the instant enlightenment that he talks about uh, people having, I said, oh my God, that is an experience. This, this being, this existent principle, this isness is an experience to be known as an, through experience. It is a becoming. It is an awakening. And now it's like big deal, right? It's on, you'll see bumper stickers with this on it, you know, <laughs> but like people wear t-shirts that the, every yoga studio will have something about like truth is becoming, you know, mm -hmm. but for me as a 17 year old, I, I don't, I, I can't even describe, I mean, how Titanic that shift was. It, it absolutely shook the world for me that this thing I've been thinking about is an experience. Um, so, and when, that, did you yeah. did you share that with your parents as elders in uh, a Presbyterian church? Did you share that revelation or Probably epiphany with them? Not, um, you know, I was kind of a typical um, seventeen year old, probably a, a bit of a punk at times. Uh, if they listen to this, they'll be smiling. Um, mm -hmm. <laughs> so I probably wasn't um, having these conversations with them. Um, at what, that time what were yeah. you like at uh, at 17 like what just uh spend a few seconds just just describing joseph emmett at, at 17 um yeah just a, you know a, a typical um high school guy in in the late mid 90s in in the washington dc area i mean the nothing um nothing different had great friends and um uh everything that goes along with it. I mean, nothing that, um, really was, uh, unique anyway, in any way. And, um, as I've mentioned it, you know, had a great, have a great family and, and supported and getting a, a really good education. And, um, yeah, I mean, the, the nothing, uh, remarkable in terms of, of this path, um, mm -hmm. except that this, this thought was there. And I, I don't know if you ask my friends, I mean, um, at the time, they would probably say that, you know, I tended to uh, um, wax poetic <laughs> and, and, and philosophize maybe um, even then. But, um, you know, um, otherwise, just a, a normal guy. Yeah. Okay. So you get handed this book or you get yep. recommended that you need to read this book and you have that, that, um, uh, this revelation that it, it's an experience or can be an experience. Yeah, keep going. That's really, really interesting. I don't, um, it's a really uh, interesting kind of just a uh, narrative arc of, of not having it, then having it and, mm -hmm. and, and reading or maybe in some way getting some confirmation or articulation of something you already felt, but didn't know how to express.
I think yeah. in my own in my own path, I, I a lot of these concepts I think were not only introduced to me when I was younger uh, by my dad that taught us to meditate when we were when we were little, mm. thankfully. But uh, but also it that's so it's so interesting just to have this be this uh, outsider looking in versus I think what happens to to a lot of it. It's like you know in eighth grade if you're told you need to read great expectations you're when you need to do it and you're only 14 um a lot of a lot of it can be lost on you versus discovering it and and discovering it at the right time that you are by definition searching for it yeah no absolutely that's okay so yeah so i mean just to, to but i mean to say like um it wasn't like a um there was never like a rejection of any worldview that I had been surrounded by. It was just sort of this new thing that came and, and just kind of clean bold me, you know? Um, mm. Yeah. All right. And then what happened? Yeah. So um, from there uh, it was, it was a cascade. I mean, from there it was just um, my God, you know, where can, um, where can I find out more about this state of being that these people are talking about? Cause now I'm understanding it as a state of being. And, um, as, as a ultimate experience that we can achieve, you know, and, and still at that point, there's, there's no like philosophical infrastructure around understanding how it fits into the bigger picture or anything. It was just like, wow, this is a state of being that can be reached. And as human beings, these guys are saying that it, this is what we're born to. This is the highest peak of a human life. And I was just, how do I get there? You know, um, and, uh, you know, lots of great conversations with lots of great people, lots of wonderful books. Um, and, uh, yeah. So going into, uh, another story for you, um, I, I went to wash you in St. Louis. Uh, and, um, great school, great school. Yeah. I I don't think I could get in there now, but at the time I did. And, um, uh, I, you know, with all the other normal classes, I, I had a strong leaning towards trying to basically find out how to learn to, to live a life that takes you in the direction of this higher state of being, uh, at the university. Um, and, um, I mean, with all due respect to Wash U and the professors and everybody there, um, I was disappointed. Um, the academic approach is all about information. It's all about, you know, just reading as many books as possible. Um, and I don't doubt that some of the people there are, are wonderful teachers and practitioners and all that, but you know, we read the Bhagavad Gita in four days in one of my classes, you know, and at the ashram, we, we spend two years on the Bhagavad Gita and seven days a week, four or five hours a day, reflecting on those 700 verses, you know? So do you mind telling listeners a little bit about what the Bhagavad Gita is? Yeah. So the Bhagavad Gita is one of the core books of Vedanta. It's, um, uh, about a 2,500 year old text that has uh, 90% of the concepts of, of Vedanta are in that book. Um, it ranges from the 
talking about the transcendental and talking about people that reach the state of self-realization, that absolute state of spiritual enlightenment. Uh, it, it discusses how to get to, to that state. It discusses how to act in the world, how to be successful, um, and everything in between. Um, and it, it is, but it does it and it does it in a, uh, just to interject a, the, the fact that it, it can be read almost as a fictional narrative. Oh um, yeah. It, it was a conversation. A, yeah. yeah. A conversation. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I think it, it takes about 25 minutes if you read it like a play <laughs> mm-hmm. and, and two years of the three year course at Vedanta Academy is that book, um, because it has so much material to think about and reflect and understand. And it is, it is derived from the the tradition of the Upanishads, which are the original Vedantic texts that came out of the Himalayas five thousand years ago. So th- there's a flow of knowledge that started uh, in the Himalayas or Himalayas, as Americans say, here um, that goes down to present day. Um, and and the Gita is about halfway through. Um, so I, I just you know. That's that's one of many books that we just breezed through in the course, and I, I just felt like you know I'm just skimming along the surface. And, and what's really interesting is I want to learn how to live a life that is that is uh, dedicated to a path towards that that state of being, which um, had been earlier uh, discovered, you know. And um, so uh, I was there for a year and. Um, then I thought I'll go to Greece because I had heard about this place in northern Greece called Mount Athos, and where there are monks still living in caves on this peninsula that um, you have to get a special visa for to go, and you have to swear that you're going for spiritual purposes. And and again, this is pre-internet. Now you could Google, you know, Enlightenment school, and there'd be you know, 15,000 results, but you know, I didn't even know what to ask for. And so I had heard about this place and I wanted to travel. So I I went to Greece and did some courses and went up to Mount Athos and, um, it was incredible. I mean, just, it's an astounding place, but very few guys spoke English and it wasn't even in the, the tradition that I was being drawn to. Um, I came back, I went to uh, I looked into this uh, monastery in Nova Scotia. Um, I drove out to the Naropa Institute in Boulder. How uh, how were you hearing about in the you know the pre Google era? How were you hearing about these different places? It's a really good question. I I don't remember. I I think um, I mean Mount I had heard about from a friend in D.C. a couple of years before, and so I just had in my mind that this image of a you know monasteries on the side of mountains over the sea kind of thing you know Mm. um which it is and it is outrageously amazing beautiful place um but the other two i'm not sure i I think naropa i i must have been talking to to uh, fellow classmates at washu and, and people mentioned these things um and what i kept saying to people was and to myself was i want to find a place where i can learn to live this knowledge where I can learn to live by these higher principles of life in the direction of, uh, that, that original state of infinite consciousness. And, um, 
so none of the places really struck me. I mean, they were nice people, but nobody really struck me as um, that authoritative. Um, and uh, then one day, um, the, the, fall, the, the fall of my sophomore year, October uh, 1996, um, a girl came into one of my classes and said, there's a Swami on campus. And um, he's talking in this building and it's free and you guys can go if you want. And it happened to be on my way home. So I thought, okay, I'll go. And, and at that point, James, I had seen one, I think one documentary about India, you know, and, and it was like National Geographic and it was snakes and elephants. And the only swamis or, that I saw were, you know, guys sitting there covered in ash with dreadlocks and, you know, smoking chillums or whatever. And, and, um, there was my, that was my level of ignorance about India. And again, India wasn't on the world stage as it is now, you know, um, nobody, at least in my world as a 19 year old knew anything about it. And, uh, I didn't know a word of Vedanta or Gita or, I mean, just the, that we had touched it, but very for, little. For listeners to know, it's, um, uh, every few episodes, Joseph sends me an email with a quote from someone that's that is um by any stretch of of any measurement extremely uh successful founder or investor that's that's been on the podcast and <laughs> you'll write me notes saying you know recapping a quote saying that's pure gita uh, which <laughs> i love i laugh every time i see oh it's uh, so true that, I mean, that uh, phrase of pure gita Eric, uh, Eric Nies, is it? Nies? Reese. Yeah, Eric Reese. Reese. Eric blew me away. I, I've been quoting Eric in my classes for the last, since I heard it. Um, he's, he's, Eric, he's easily one of the deepest thinkers um, out in Silicon Valley, yeah, for sure. He, he was amazing. I love that podcast. I think I listened to that one to him twice because it was so amazing how he said the most important quality to be a successful leader is non-attachment. Mm-hmm. Which is pure Gita. I mean, the Gita has been saying that for <laughs> 2,500 years. You mm -hmm. know, the most important thing is to have an ideal beyond your selfish interests and function towards that without attachment to the past, without mama, without excitement in the present, juara, and without asha, hope, or attachment to the future results of your action, the fruits. I mean, mm -hmm. he laid out the, Swamiji calls that, that section of the Gita, the blueprint of right action. And I mean... Uh, the way Eric uh, spelled it out was so amazing, um, and um, and and Justin, Justin, uh, is it Khan or Ken? Yeah, uh, Justin Khan. Justin was how he was talking about you know that when he got the the exit uh, from his company, uh, he's saying nothing happened. <laughs> Do you remember that that yeah. piece? Yeah, and they also just talked about uh, detachment from results. So he was yeah. you know, detaching from something specific, but detachment nonetheless. Absolutely pure uh, Vedanta. Um, and um, yeah, so clearly the, the, we do a lot of work with, with leaders um, um, and Swamiji does it on a, on a huge global scale. And it's just these, these principles of, of the Bhagavad Gita that, that are starting to become um, more in vogue, I guess, um, and but I would imagine will be even more so. I mean, globally, yes, it's been. It's obviously been a uh, traditional text for twenty five hundred years because of its uh, its obvious staying power and the depth within those 
uh, 700 verses and totally. I've, I've only read it. Um, I've only read it twice and, and it just, uh, I cannot remember the translation that I, I read, but it is, um, similar to, to the gospels. It is this best way. I think you can describe it of why it's so profound is even in those 700 verses, it's like this, um, narrative technology that could be utilized 2,500 years ago, 500 BC, where they could transmit these principles and a story in a way that you couldn't just transmit. No one would listen to you if you rattled off 700 different principles or 100 different uh, disconnected principles or texts. Uh But if if it is woven into this pretty compelling story and, and poem of of um a prince on this battlefield uh correct me for any details that i get wrong by the way yeah. um just but you know it's it's all woven within this this pretty compelling narrative of a prince on the battlefield um having dialogue with his his uh charioteer like it's mm-hmm. it is when you and I think this is kind of, it's like the, the example I gave of great expectations when you're 14, trying to read something of, you know, massive significance within you know, Western literature as a 14 year old, when you're compelled to do it, or you in Washington university and, and four days on the Gita versus in the mindset of, of searching and, and discovering uh, what's, what's within the text. It is so mind blowing how well, so much of this is 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 woven within this um within this short poem mm. it, and it, and there's i mean the proof of the pudding's in the eating we we're still reading it 2500 years later or with the gospels or the sutras yeah. and buddhism where i mean those ideas are lasting longer than any empire that's ever existed than any human structure um right you know that we we know of in in many ways okay so you um so you heard Swami, a swam. What is a swami? What is what is what does the word swami mean? Uh, so a a swami. It means teacher. He's a teacher. Um, okay, and you heard there's a swami on the campus. I heard there's a swami on campus, and um, I uh, went there, and and I, I was standing outside of the building, and uh, Swami Partasarati, the swami, walked by me. And I remember thinking, like, oh, it could be the Swami, but I'm not sure because that's not what I thought Swamis look like, you know. Because um, Swami walked by, and he's um, uh, our uniform is a dhoti, which is like a long um, sheet that we wear, uh, and then a kind of a long kurta, long top, and uh, just a simple, you know, sandalwood mala around his neck, and a very corporate haircut. And walking very tall, and and you know this is not what I had imagined. So I thought, okay, I don't know if that's the Swami or not, but I'll go in. And what um, what, ha- what had you imagined? Well, that's what I had said, right? So I I I had seen that one documentary, and so I was thinking Swamis were like, uh, you know, guys uh, with the dreadlocks, twenty feet long. I thought I even thought he might be carried in, you know, uh, <laughs> like I, I had no idea. I mean, I was that level of totally yeah ignorant and the world just wasn't really my world was not showing me india at the time so i, I had no idea 
Um, well, and similar to the four days on the Gita, when we when we study or get the equivalent four days in theology on on something like Hinduism, it's it in yeah. America uh, in the nineties, it would it, it would have easily there's a good chance it could have been this cartoonish version of, of um, three thousand gods and and eight yeah. limbs and yeah. and losing kind of the um, the depth or nuance and symbolism of uh, of of something that you know is is really it has so little to do with um you know an eight eight armed uh individual but uh, okay so sorry i cut you off you you saw the swami said i could this guy could be could be the swami yeah and i went in and um for some reason there were there was only a few students and um a lot of professors i'm not sure why um and they introduced the swami and this man stood up and um, he was introduced as Swami Partasarati. He's come from Vedanta Academy, and um, he started. And um, he started talking. And I would say 25 seconds into it, I thought to myself, oh, my God, this man is talking about this philosophy from experience and uh that was just clear as day to me you know you know in the bible it says that everyone's standing around the market and the pharisees are preaching and a lot of people are giving talks and and then jesus stood up and everyone listens and it says because he spoke as one that has authority so mm -hmm. All I can say is it wasn't what Swamiji said. It was actually really a very down-to-earth, on-the-ground, simple lecture, um, just giving the basics of Vedanta. But it was the authority with which he spoke that I had never seen, not in any professor, not in anybody I'd met along the way in the, in the last year or so of, of looking into all this. And so I was floored. and. Um, you know, then the talk's about to, to wind up, and he says, uh, by the way, uh, I have a, a school in India called an ashram where I'm teaching people to live this knowledge. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I almost fell out of my chair. I mean, because <laughs> that is... It was just uncanny. I mean, that's literally the phrase that I've been walking around saying to people, how to find a place to live this knowledge. And um, so, you know, the room cleared out and, and I went up to him and, and I said, um, uh, I would like to come study with you at, at your institute. And uh, he put both hands on, on my shoulders and he says, I know. <laughs> <laughs> and and I know and 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 I I must have looked at him like with some twisted face of, you know like oh my god is because he goes and then he says he says no no I'm not psychic or something don't worry but I knew you were going to come talk to me because you were just and he staring at him the the way I was staring at him the, the whole lecture mm. so um so that was it I mean the um the next day basically or a couple days later I informed WashU that um uh, I would be taking a very extended leave of absence. And, um, 
about nine months later, um, I, I got to the ashram. I had to, I had to do a couple of jobs and get a plane ticket and, and get there. But I got there and um, we have a three-year residential course on Vedanta at the academy, um, which, as I mentioned, is 365 days a year. There's no breaks. There's no holidays. It's rigorous, systematic, disciplined uh, course of study to give you a chance to uh, really deeply absorb this philosophy into your system and practice it in that in the lifestyle there as well it's very simple very uh, communal um uh place and uh yeah so it's it's 4 a.m till 9 p.m every day um yeah can you walk me through is it a it, is each day the exact same pretty routinized yeah every day is the same so yeah 4 a.m till 9 till 6 a.m uh, is is the the crucial time uh, in India? Those hours are called Brahma Mahurtam, which literally means time of the gods. Um, and nowadays, you can see so many people from so many backgrounds talking about the value of the early morning hours. Um, Absolutely, and uh, people they on are, this podcast have mentioned it uh, a couple yeah. times. Uh, yeah, I've yeah, I've heard him here also, and and you know that's the time when when the veil is the thinnest. I mean, that's the time when that thought of reality is most easily arrived at, um, and you are less uh, prone to indulgence and and action. You're more able to sit with your thoughts and and really imbibe uh, this knowledge in those hours. So those are that's what happens first thing every day, and then there's tea. And then um, we had yoga and, and um, uh, then, you know, physical training. We, you can, there's soccer games and basketball and a gym. And um, it's a really young place. It's, it's really wonderful. If you go in the early morning around, you know, seven o'clock, you might think it's a sports uh, institution of some kind. It's, it's so active. Um, it's not like a sleepy ashram in India that, that people might think of. Um, yeah, and then the day goes on from there. We have, of course, three meals a day, and there's another study session. We have um, lectures every day, Swamiji's lecture, where he teaches um, all of these books. Um, like I mentioned, the Gita is, is two years of it. He has some, some texts that he, he teaches. The most famous is, is Vedanta Treatise, The Eternities, which you have, which is an attempt to take all of the ideas from this 5,000-year-old wisdom tradition and put them in one text in English from the simplest to the most um, uh, subtle concepts, um, which is, you know... And, and that, I'll, I'll, yeah. I'll add that some of the, the remarkable nature of this book is that um, not only is it bound very uniquely um, and, and very uh, easy to follow written Quite well, I think part of that is because it's written originally in English, and it's very rare to get a text like this on on Vedanta that is written from someone that studied it for fifty years and um, and is writing its first edition in English. So it's very easy to to read through um, for anyone in in English. Yeah, I mean, Swami is. Um you know, he's got a law degree from London University. Um, he was actually raised on Shakespeare, um, much more than Vedanta. Um, his father was a Shakespearean scholar. 
Um, so his English is way, way, way better than mine. So definitely um, written in English um, for the English speaking world. Um, basically with the idea that for folks that like most of us who aren't going to have the time or wherewithal to go through all of these Sanskrit texts and try to pull out the, the essence of it. Uh, he's done it. And, and Swami, speaking of 4 a.m., not, not a word of that book or any of Swami's books was written after 6 a.m. Hmm. All, all of his writing was done in those hours because that's, according to him, when it was the, the most um, perfect. Um, and, and Vedanta Treatise, The Eternities, uh, took him 20 years. So this is not just a casual text. Uh, I, I firmly believe that it will be considered hundreds of years from now as one of the major milestones in the Vedantic tradition, um, going from the Upanishads to, to the Gita to, to this text, Vedanta Treatise, um, because of its comprehensiveness. And not only that, but the way it's written. So the way that book is written is it's not just like he, whatever thoughts came to mind, he, he wrote it in a way that was systematic and designed to help the reader reflect, which is one of the crucial um, uh, recommendations of how to actually live the knowledge, how to get it into your system, is to actually read about 20%, but disciplined in a disciplined way, question, reflect, and cogitate for 80% of the time. You know? So that's why it takes years to go through them. But that's how you get it into your system. One thing is listening. That's, that's called shravana um, in Sanskrit. But the second step is manana. And that's the, the really uh, important thing to, to onboard these values and, and this worldview and allow it to actually bring about a transformation is, is sitting and reflecting and questioning it, not taking any of it for granted, not just absorbing it because it's an old book you know, but because it makes sense to you, then the living it is automatic. Uh, so, um, this is one of the, this is the crucial thing at the ashram, you know, uh, we move very slowly through this, the, the knowledge and there's a lot of time for sitting with yourself, reflecting over it for years. And then on top of that, we have group discussions that, which are very, um, um, again, scientifically designed. Uh, uh, it's not just a free-for-all conversation, but there, there's a certain method of discussion where the students get together in small groups and reflect, and then they get together in a larger group and reflect and answer questions. And, um, of course, uh, Swamiji was there and available for questions all the time, which is, I mean, it's, it's just an inconceivably wonderful opportunity to, to, to learn uh, from a master at that level, you know, and, and at the time when I met him, Swami was 70. Um, and now he's 92 and, um, still traveling the world. We're going to London tomorrow. We're going to meet him in London. We're going to be with him in India. Then we're going to be in, with him in South Africa later this summer. Then he's going to be here in the U S and I mean, it's, it's all of these things combined, the, the reflection and the, the environment of the ashram and learning the lifestyle and most very importantly, having somebody who's fully living it like that as an example is, is what it means to have a guru in the truest sense. It's not, it's not to have someone tell you what to do. It's more to have someone to, to show the way, you know. And um, he, um, I had no idea about all this 
uh, when I met him, but, um, that's what it's become. And, and, you know, 20 years on, um, yeah, I, I, gratitude is, is not the word. I, I don't have a word for how I feel about the whole thing, but I, I cannot imagine, um, this life, uh, without that. Well, and if someone wants to hear directly from, from Swami G, um, his nickname, it, you can, he was actually just recently on the, uh, on Gwyneth, Pal- Gwyneth Paltrow's Goop podcast, um, that, uh, is a, a really big podcast, um, from yeah. a, a few weeks ago. And, uh, and so you can hear, um, him on the podcast, the, um, I want to touch on how we met real quick, just a few minutes on, on um, how and where we met. It's a huge shout out to Calamigas Ranch um, owners down in, right outside of Malibu or in Malibu. Um, the I was going through, we had just gone through this incredibly, incredibly painful. Well, 50% of me says it's incredibly painful uh, acquisition process and 50% with, with selling tilt to Airbnb and 50% of me, I think I was, uh, I was, um, I recognized um, at the same time how fortunate we were, but um, suffice it to say, it was a huge shift from where we thought the the company would be just six months prior and, and through layoffs and through, um, just some some brain beating moments um and and ultimately um a sale of of our technology and and um and and the team members joining this new company it was just it was uh, a really dynamic time let's put it that way and um i took a few days with my wife cheney down to uh to go down to southern california um I believe we drove down there and, uh, and we stayed on the water, but someone had told us about, uh, she had stayed at the, this really cool new place called Calamigas ranch, um, up in the mountains, maybe a year or two before. And so we went up there, uh, for two or three nights. And instead of a Bible in the, in the, um, right next to the bed in the drawer next to the bed, maybe there was a Bible in there as well, but there was this book called Vedanta Treatise. And open it up and write in the cover. Just saw some interesting quotes, uh, put it down, and maybe similar to your experience of of the Swami on campus saying you can come to this ashram and live this knowledge. Um, I saw a little uh, pamphlet for yoga for the intellect, and mm-hmm. and I had um, you know, we we attend church each each Sunday, and it's and it's a really reflective um, point in my week and a really important part of my uh, routine as well as uh, reading scripture as well as imbibing on everything I can uh, around um, you know philosophy especially specifically people ask like where where did how do I consume um, different philosophies the best place to be honest is YouTube just this free library of mm. of amazing audio sometimes visual but most of the time it's just audio uh lectures and and i loved this one philosopher named alan watts who is uh 
former Episcopalian priest, but it's probably going to be seen as one of the most, in my view, one of the most influential philosophers of the 20th century and one of the forefathers of bringing Eastern philosophy into the West and from a unique lens of, of being a former Episcopalian priest. But the um, long story short, it was I had probably heard thousands and thousands of hours of, of this, this guy, Alan Watts. And, um, and he never mentioned Vedanta, but I only put it together years later that he was, he was, mo- he was very likely influenced by Vedanta, but just never used labels for, for himself, for his philosophies. And, and just, he literally would give these lectures, uh, like someone would, would play Mozart for a concert hall. He was just, he called himself, uh, I think he, he quite literally called himself just a, um, a philosophical entertainer. And, yeah. <laughs> and so it kind of softened, beat the meat and softened my, so, softened my brain for, uh, and, uh, and my perception for something l- as simple and specific as yoga for the intellect. Like it was mm-hmm. just like, it had, had completely softened me up for, um, for this this reading uh, or this phrase yoga for the intellect and in san francisco um love yoga uh the physical part of it but i remember hearing that um and maybe you can you can tell me if this is true joseph that the physical part of yoga it made its way to the west because um they could put it on 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 tv in the 50s and 60s and really in the 60s and 70s it started to like take off as this visual embodiment of of um, spirituality and you you couldn't couldn't really just put someone reading the bhagavad gita on on tv and mm-hmm. and so it was that visual representation and medium of television that uh that made physical yoga um this kind of exotic eastern import that people took to but but that for um spiritually minded folks in india um the physical yoga is like it's nothing compared to to um, a- even yogi, uh, the term is is not really a term for for a you know an exercise <laughs> teacher. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, is is that true? Is that you know is that a, a small subset of yogic practices? Is is the actual physical side of things and and uh, the West kind of uh, gets lost on what yoga is is truly meant um, or what is for meant sure. by that term? Absolutely. Yoga is taken from the Sanskrit root yuj, which means to yoke or to connect, to join. Uh, just like religion is re-ligare, again join, again connect, again bind. So what it means is that we've lost our original nature. We've lost that state of that supreme being. We've lost that infinitude that we actually are and the any effort to return to that state is yoga so um there's actually hatha yoga is what is known here the physical asanas and nothing wrong like i said we do yoga asanas every day in the ashram i do yoga as often as i can um but even in in uh, even in the yoga sutras uh, which were written by Patanjali, which every yoga teacher has to read. You know, the second verse defines yoga as yoga chitta vritti niroda, which is yoga is the cessation of mental fluctuations. So it's a 
true yoga is is bringing the mind to a still point and experiencing yourself as you really are which is infinite so the asana poses the physical poses are a conducive practice for that but the uh, throughout the gita and the, and the vedantic philosophy the focus is on, on karma yoga bhakti yoga jnana yoga which is using your actions for others that's karma yoga service and sacrifice the bhakti yoga is is surrendering your feelings and devotion towards the higher towards the supreme towards that that truth and reality towards the self and jnana yoga is using your thoughts using your intellect to think of that higher reality of that higher truth because of the principle that as you think so you become so if you're constantly thinking about your body all the time you're physical if you're constantly thinking about your possessions and your bank balance all the time you're materialistic if you're constantly thinking about my emotions and how i feel and how everybody else feels you're an emotional person if you're thinking about you know what is the the uh, this astrological theory versus that physics theory and quantum this and quantum then you're an intellectual but a person who's thinking about the self capital s who's thinking about the infinite the reality the truth the spirit that that may, that's what makes you spiritual nothing else you can be a swami and be materialistic you can be a banker and be spiritual it has nothing to do with what you do you can be stretching and the most perfect asana poses in the world and be a crook there have been many examples of that you know you can be a vedanta teacher and be a crook you know what i mean it, it has to do with where are your thoughts so yoga true yoga is using all of our equipments to get our thought flow in the direction of reality and in, into that isness that we've been talking about and um that's why uh we called it yoga for the intellect at, at calamigos um guest ranch and beach club where we met um because um uh that's what is really required is to get our thoughts onto that that reality that's when we we get the change and if a person is introverted enough um to think and 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 attend a lecture and and intake knowledge then it is that is the the straight the most direct path towards the higher state of consciousness mm. yeah i i think one of the things that i um that i struggle with immensely is this future orientation around I think a lot of of founders or makers or or creators, um, they and many and, and almost anyone in the startup ecosystem, they are attracted to it because they're really resourceful people. They, by definition, okay. can take the resources around them and uh, almost like alchemy, produce something even better. Um, and in many times, that can be impact and change. It can be um, financial uh engineering it it can be just an outcome that did not exist when those those parts were sitting there as kind of uh, a one and a one and a one and the summation being being greater than uh or the whole being a greater uh a greater amount than the sum of the parts 
And and I think the strength in that is that resourcefulness, but the weakness in that is then you're just you're feeding that constantly of wow, I can make even more, I can make even more, we can get even further, I can combine these even further. And it's like this this um it can lead to extreme attachment to the future and extreme attachment to this imaginative future you've created for yourself that then the tiniest little thing that you know dings you off your path really rocks you and and i think that there's um there was something so peaceful to to uh, almost bring it back to your first story there was something so peaceful about um philosophy and spirituality for me that was like i don't need to drive i don't need to this future does not depend on me piecing these things together and so much of my story or life to that point was uh, in many ways i could have i could have i could have seen the narrative as me piecing these things together me doing these things uh, when obviously you zoom out and, and we are not the authors of 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 almost any of our works um it's it's always so many people so many things and so many you know even generations before us um it's laughable how little little impact if you zoom out far enough we we have on these things but mm-hmm. as as a founder or for people listening i think i learned this um separately but it ties into this that most of the time your strengths are your weaknesses and they are not separate buckets that what you are good at is is in many ways what you've leaned on uh that produces a lot of the uh, misgivings or shortcomings in in your your life an example would be you are great at at envisioning a future well the thing that causes you psychological pain and or psychological uh death as eric reese puts it is when that future is altered from what you thought it was going to be or uh, in the most mm-hmm. sensitive way being nudged in a different direction than than you have already set your mind to your sure. strength yeah it's it's so it's for me it was um letting go of this this future and realizing okay i can just uh, i not only do i not need to drive but one i was never driving and two um we're going to get to a whole better place better destination uh if i can if i can really learn to go with things and detach from from these results i you know just so seamlessly can write down as goals for a year or for the next yeah. 5 years um it was this and it the yoga the intellect but just to finish the story we met i went into uh this class and it was just my my wife and i um and you and i was like who's this guy this this <laughs> dude looks um like just a a, a guy from from texas and mm. and we actually had mutual friends uh, or your cousin was friends with my wife in college it was so yeah. so hilarious this cheney was in bonnie's wedding yeah exactly <laughs> and this extreme, my cousin yeah this this crazy extreme, uh, quite literally opposite end of the world yeah um philosophy and and concept was delivered by <laughs> just a dude that <laughs> looked like someone that i would have grown up with which um yeah. was so unexpected but i think added to um the intrigue of it just i don't know there was something 
something uh, in just going to maybe a similar experience that you had of just thinking it was going to be this this uh, this guy and you know uh, uh, dreadlocks and uh, you know caked with with white powder ended up just being a guy with a business haircut and yeah. and yeah that was a very similar uh, experience for for us but it was um, yeah it, it was it was that term yoga for the intellect that's what i had gone to so many yoga classes um in san francisco and found a lot of peace in them but it was always in the verbal messages within them and it was like okay this is the thing um instead of it being an addendum to the hour this was the whole hour was uh was was being getting a chance to discuss these these concepts um yeah yeah, it was a great. It was a great uh, intersection of of lives there that then has led to us uh, staying in touch for years after, and and me reading uh, Vedanta Treatise and handing it out to I actually hand it out to every every uh, guest that comes on the podcast. That's amazing. So one of the the things that I I, I want to uh, touch on is something that we chatted about recently, um, and then we're going to get to the last question. But something that we chatted about recently was. Um, you told me this fro- this phrase that is the work, and um, and I was I was asking I was asking you about uh, just you know this this podcast and putting it out there and and it having the most like obvious uh, sp- philosophical uh, subtext to it. It's it is a psychological. The whole podcast is about the psychological journey of creation, but it has a very strong uh, philosophical um, subtext to it. And and you know, putting it out there, and, and when we were chatting, I was talking about, yeah, it's just you know these thoughts. I'll put them out there that I that I think are are profound that have that have really changed my my perspective on things. And um, you know, and they'll get two likes or three likes, and then I put a photo of of Mm. of me and uh bill gates up and it's got 200 300 likes and and it has this obvious you know you know i don't expect them to have the same um the same feedback loop or response but man is it drastically different and and i was you know telling you i you know what has your experience been on that and i feel like it's just uh maybe i should just not even post these things um (laughs) Or get off social media altogether and just you know just do the podcast. Um, and I said, you know, have you ever experienced uh, just a lack of response to your teachings? And you laughed about it. Uh, do you mind uh, telling me about kind of when I was asking you that was going through your mind? Yeah. So um, I, I I remembered and I told you the story that um, you know I the first ten years of study of Vedanta I was just studying Vedanta. I never even conceived of teaching or sharing it was simply for me as a for myself um and then once i I got a taste of of teaching i was so inspired and it's such a wonderful blessing to be able to work with this knowledge all the time and um to share it with people and and um so uh you naturally get enthusiastic and you set up talks and you set up classes and you're so inspired to share it with other people and you you think everyone's going to love it and there've been so many times where I've gone to the hall or I've gone to the classroom or I've whatever it is 
um, um, and nobody comes. <laughs> like literally nobody attends. Um, and you know, I must say things have have shaped up lately, but that has happened. And I remember at one point, I can I, I ask was, how how many times have have you put on an event or class and no one showed up? If you were to put a number on it, and and how many classes uh, you know total, or what percentage would that be? Um, I mean, hundreds, hundreds of times, <laughs> where where I've gone to a class, like like um, you know, for example, we met we met at, at Calamigos because I was trying to recreate um, the residencies, the Vedanta residencies that our organization that we do at at a spa in India called Ananda. And that's really successful, you know, and so I assume that it would be that way at Calamigos, but it's, it's not, it wasn't like that, you know, that, um, there people are, are not as interested when they're there for a wedding to, to listen to Vedanta as they are when they're on top of a mountain in the Himalayas at Ananda Spa in India. Um, so lots of times I would, I would go there and there wouldn't be folks. Um, there was a spa that I taught at on the island of Mauritius for a while where, for, Man, you get to teach in some pretty epic places. I know it's it's yeah, and, and there were times there where weeks would go by and nobody would attend the class because people are snorkeling and whatever they're doing, you know. Mm -hmm. And so, um, and then you know, I, I when I eventually moved to California and started setting up, you know, we'd set up talks and you know, one or two people would come, and I'm thinking, you know, fifty people would be there. Um, and I was telling Swamiji this one time, and I, I wasn't like upset, but I was just saying like, "This is what's going on. Like, uh, what what am I doing wrong?" You know. And he said he started laughing and slapping his leg and laughing up at the yeah, and like staring at the ceiling, laughing hard. You know, really laughing hard. And um, once he stopped laughing, he just looked at him. He said, "That's good. That's the work." <laughs> and what did he mean by "that's the work"? The, the 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 whole the whole thing is the to serve a cause um in our case the cause of making vedanta available to the world without attachment without worry about whether people come or don't come or what happens after they come or who will understand that it's in the work that you'll find the the success is in the work it's it's the the peace and and of mind is is in the work that you're doing, and not anywhere else. Yeah, you know, the work which is I, not which a I've, bridge. The work is it, not a bridge to something else. No, it intense work is rest. So it the karma yoga, the serving other people. It's in the action of serving that larger cause, serving other people. That um, that's where the yoga happens. It's in the reflection upon the reality. That's where the yoga happens, not what am I going to get out of this? If you're studying and reflecting and, and a part of you is thinking, am I getting wiser? Am I getting more self-realized? Am I getting more enlightened? You'll never get more enlightened. You know, that's like trying to go to sleep. Um, mm -hmm. So uh, that's the work. And, and Swami, I mean, says all the time, he, he says, I've been traveling the world for 60 years and nobody's heard me, <laughs> you know? <laughs> And 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 I I myself have taken him to to lectures that for him that 60, I've arranged sixty years. I just want to pause on that for a second. He's been teaching us for sixty years. And sixty years. Yeah, it's. Uh, he says they, he hasn't communicated to one person fully. What does he mean by that? 
Literally. What do you, what do you think? Nobody you has fully understood the truth. It There's is, a lot of people that have benefited themselves, but in short, he hasn't, nobody else that he's taught has realized the self. It's such a rare thing. And people nowadays, you go to India for a month and come back and change your name and say, I'm self-realized, you know? How, how, how does that make you feel about, about that as someone that's, that's striving to or studying this for 22 years? I mean, I, 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 this is, um, it's a matter of fact for me. I mean, I know that, um, I know how much work is left to do for myself and all of my uh, other fellow students that I know of and people on the path. And I know how, um, how rare it is to, to have a full-blown self-realized soul and um, to have had the opportunity to, to spend time with such a person. Um, it, you know, I, I, that's a whole nother podcast, but it, it really drives home the, um, the, it makes you humble to, to be around a person of that level. And, and so it doesn't make me feel any way it, it, in like a bad way. It, it just inspires me to continue the effort because I know how much more road is left. Um, so that doing the work thing is, 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 um, you, you take refuge in, the work if people come you take refuge in that if they don't come that's it get on to the next job and um incidentally nowadays um people are are um responding in a in a much different level in a much more beautiful level uh even here in houston um that's one of the reasons we came back was because every time i came here there were such interested people what do you what do you um, think is causing that just your own, maybe you all are just hitting a stride or getting better at what you do, or do you think there are a macro causes? I think there's some of well? that. There's some of that. Also, we just have a, a larger network here. There's a, there's a massive, organized, highly educated um, Indian population here, which is um, a wonderful base uh, for us. Yeah. I, it, but even then, it's not like, uh, you know, people aren't knocking down the doors to sit and study and reflect on philosophy. It's, it's always going to be a small percentage. You know, it's, it's not physical. It's not something that has an instant um, gratification associated with it. In fact, it can be um, disassociating. I mean, to really stop and question everything about what we view our life as you know, is not necessarily uh, a comfortable thing. That's why it's typically for the young people. I mean, in, in, uh, traditionally, this knowledge was given to, you know, people at the age of 12, 13, or whatever, because they're not attached to certain ideas yet. They're not fixated. That their, their worldview doesn't have consequences as much as it does when, as you move along. Um, your worldview is actually a, a baseline for how you walk out of the door in the morning and everyone has one. And if you go upsetting it, um, and, and <laughs> disturbing it, there are some very real, um, potential consequences, uh, that can happen in terms of how you live. And, and so, um, I, it's just not something that, um, most that I think will ever be like a, a mass, a mass successful thing, but it's always there. Uh, for people who need it and and our job is uh, which we're so so fortunate to be able to do 
is um, is to make it available for those who seek it. And so that's that's where the work is. And it might not be a mass uh, adoption, but it can be a mass um, affectation of of just. Uh, I know, think so. I mean, you know, Swami can incorporate. Um, I yeah. know that I know that YPO groups go to go to yeah. Um, yeah. the the academy in India right. from you know all around the world to visit it. They do, yeah. The YPO has had I think fifteen international retreats there now for the last fifteen years, and it's one of the most highly rated retreats that they go on. And, you know, Swami is, uh, because of his background, so um, eloquently translated the knowledge from this ancient wisdom um, to very practical philosophy. Um, you and I have kind of been <clears throat> soaring pretty high today, but there's also really um, down-to-earth practical benefits of stress reduction and relationships and how to get ego out of the way and work and, you know, leadership, um, these sort of topics that that you know, Swami is reaching the very, the very, the very top of the leadership in the world now. So in that way, you're right. I think there's a, um, a trickle down spirituality hope, um, in, in that effort. If, uh, if there were, if there were one or two practical concepts that you could impart to listeners, um, and many of which are in the, the startup realm or now this you know this podcast has now grown to um yeah we just passed ten thousand downloads so it, it, and so you know it's it's actually who knows where this is is kind of taking hold but um if you were to impart one to two concepts uh, on the pra of the practical sort from vedanta what would they be so the first thing to understand is that every human being has a body which is moving us around and it's a vehicle. Within the body, there are two equipments, manas and buddhi in Sanskrit, mind and intellect. You can call them one and two. The mind is feelings, emotions, likes and dislikes, attachments, all the flowy stuff. Mm. The other kind equipment- like, Kind of like what, what we would call the heart. The in, heart, in the yeah. West. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. It's called, it's translated as mind in because of Sanskrit reasons, but yeah, it doesn't matter what you can call it heart. The other equipment in us and in Vedanta, these are talked about as subtle equipments. I mean, they're actual upadis, they're, they're equipment. The other one is the intellect, which is uh, called buddhi in Sanskrit. And that is the ability to think, to reason, to judge, to decide, to analyze. The idea is that the intellect, if the intellect and the mind are equal, the intellect can govern and direct the mind, not crush it, not frustrate it, not suppress it, not repress it, but guide it because the mind by itself has no guidance system in there within itself. It has no ability to say when is enough enough. It has no ability to explore the unknown. It has no ability to question why are we doing things this way? So if you want innovation, if you want disruption, if you want, um, economic management of your company, if you want to not be impulsive, if you want to be disciplined in terms of uh, how you're uh, rolling out a particular initiative, you need to have a powerful intellect. Otherwise, you become a victim of the mind. If the mind suddenly doesn't feel like doing something, you don't do it, you'll never achieve. Or if it feels like doing something else that's going off of what you've decided to do with your intellect and it's stronger than the intellect, you'll go wandering off in that direction. So um, this, this I've, I've idea, heard, I've heard yeah. Swamiji use uh, the um, 
a metaphor of of a river and the banks yeah. of the river. And the river yeah, is so the, the water. Banks, yeah. yeah, the banks are the intellect, and and the water flowing is the river. And a river is a beautiful thing, but it's also a massively destructive thing if the if the water is allowed to break the banks. Mm-hmm. So, the, in short, don't be a slave to your mind. That's all. Don't let the mind. Um, overtake the personality and do things that when in a later calmer moment, when your thinking is more clear, you think, gosh, I should have done this or I shouldn't have done that. Um, practice, this is practical in so many different ways. And it is, it is the base of really all of the corporate seminars that we do. And how do you develop the intellect? Number one, question everything. Be in the habit of questioning. Why, why am I doing this? What am I doing this for? What are we achieving all the time? Number two, don't take anything for granted. I mean, these things are related, but, you know, don't take for granted that things will always be as they are. Be on, be alert, you know, to, to, um, to how things are and how they change. So question everything. Don't take it, uh, anything for granted. And number three, go to the, go to the intellect gym which is Vedanta or whatever uh, system of, of higher values and, and critical thinking that you prefer to exercise your intellect in. But from, in my humble point of view, uh, after looking at what I've looked at over the world, uh, over the years in the world, uh, Vedanta is the most comprehensive. As you study it, it's designed to strengthen your intellect, to establish you in that higher viewpoint that gives you objectivity and clarity and ability to see where you're going and, and guide your entire personality, including the mind in that direction. And when you say uh, an intellectual gym, do you mean like, uh, like one would imagine a Buddhist temple where you are meditating for 12 hours in no. a day and it's disciplined no. through that? What do you not mean by a, that? Not at all. Not what? meditation at all. So, Sitting and taking in these higher ideas <clears throat> and reflecting upon them in a meditative way, in the sense that the, the very study itself is holding your thoughts on these higher values on a daily basis. When the mind starts wandering off into you know what's on Instagram and what's going on, you bring it back generally to the, the general um, concepts that you're working with. Um, that's, that's the intellect gym. You do that for 30 minutes, 45 minutes, an hour a day, your intellect will slowly get more strengthened and it will begin to be available to you throughout your day. So you'll be walking when you're walking, you're walking. When you're at work, you'll be at work. When you're at home with your kids, can you give me a tactical example? Well, you touched on Instagram or, or social media, but yeah, you can go with that tactical example. Yeah. You, so if you're sitting, if, if, no, no. Like if so, if you're sitting there studying um, a selection of of Vedanta, and and the mind's nature is to have no direction, so it's going to want to wander into the future. It could be what's on Instagram. It could be what will I have for breakfast? You know, it could be what what did I do yesterday? Uh, what happened at work? So that bringing the, the mind flow, your attention back to your chosen work, that's what the intellect does. To, so that as it's, this is not like, you're not going to sit down and have some bliss moment. 
You're, it, it's work. It's effort. But after, as time goes on and you do this in a consistent way, you begin to notice that you're more easily able to bring your mind and your attention to whatever it is you're doing throughout your day. So it says in the Vedanta treatise that there's far more power in this disciplined way of, of living with the intellect governing your personality than there is in the so-called seat of meditation. So what, what's happening, I mean, relaxation is wonderful. It, it is. I mean, it's a, uh, but that's really mostly what's going on in the so-called meditation in the world today. People are just relaxing who, who otherwise never stop and take a breath, you know, mm -hmm. and that's not going to actually strengthen your intellect. It's, it's, it's a healthier form of just having a rest, which is great. Like, but we should call it what it is, which is relaxation. Hannah was saying that, um, uh, for her, her, she's thinking maybe her meditation is just relaxation. And I, when I heard her say that, I was like, you know, high-fiving her in the car. I thought it was awesome because it, it's so true. Um, mm -hmm. uh, actual meditation, uh, classically defined, is holding the mind on a single thought to the exclusion of all other thoughts under the governance of the intellect. And it's actually recommended as the last stage of spiritual effort just before the person drops and dissolves the ego completely in the state of self-realization. It's the gateway to enlightenment. But mm -hmm. it, the thing is, it's easy to teach, and there's a lot more people interested in that, because you, if you run around all day and you never stop, and you're, you're always working, to just sit down and take a breath for 20 minutes is relaxing, and there's an instant effect, you know, mm -hmm. which and is great. And, and I think it, the other key idea there is, um, it is visual. You can sell it. It's kind of like physical yoga. And yeah. it is completely compatible with whatever preconceptions you're coming in with. Um, mm -hmm. Anyone mm -hmm. can sit down for 20 minutes and focus on breath. And that is really, it is powerful. But yeah, I've also heard it described that meditation is, is as broad of a term as sports. So like just saying totally. sports is good. Is, uh, there's many, many forms of meditation and and right. So it's, it's often as like done now as like a reaction to suffering and stress and agitation and blood pressure and whatever. And like many things Indian, the, the, the wisdom even of Indian medicine of Ayurveda is don't get sick in the first place. Mm -hmm. live, in, live in balance and what you eat and what time all the Ayurvedic principles, you won't ever get sick theor theoretically, you know? Mm -hmm. So the idea with Vedanta is slowly strengthen your intellect to govern your mind so that you're, you're, people talk about being in the moment and be here now and, and Ramdas and all that and be present and all these things. How to do it, you know, how the how is not being taught. That mechanism is not being taught. People talk about being mindful. What they should be talking about is be intellectful. Keep that intellect alert and aware of all that we're doing all the time so that when you have dinner with your wife tonight, you'll have dinner and you won't be thinking about your projects for tomorrow. And when you're doing your projects tomorrow, you'll be doing your projects. You won't be wondering about the conversation you had with your wife. You know, mm -hmm. that's what stress is. Stress pulls people in a hundred directions because the intellect is weak. The mind is just running amok stressing people out so they need they need weekends they need vacations they need to get away from action they get burnt out all these things are effects whereas if the intellect is governing the personality that's when you find the 
the peace in the action. That's when you find the pleasure in the action and you're always meditative. It's open eye meditation. And if you take that to the furthest extent where the buddhi is fully refined to govern the mind on a thought by thought level, then you can sit and meditate and wipe off the mind completely and reach the state of pure consciousness. But it's, there's a lot of premature uh, meditation going on. And the problem is, I don't mean to get on a, a big thing, but... No, this is, this is, um, this is really interesting. Keep yeah, the, the issue is, it's, like I said, relaxation is awesome. I love to sit on my surfboard and stare at the horizon just like the next guy. It's an amazing, you know, just drop the world, you know. Mm -hmm. um, but um, the problem is when you think, okay, now I'm spiritual and I'm done. And like, I've got my practice and I'm practicing being satisfied with how I am. And I'm just using it as my daily sort of, um, basically my daily drink, you know, mm -hmm. that's where uh, it's harmful because we all have a lot more work to do to really get into the underlying tendencies of our minds that are, that are um, distracting us from the true higher purpose of life. And that takes a lot of work. That's not something that you get by just relaxing. You've got to go through the, you got to pay the price, um, which is study and reflection and, and digging into this philosophy, like a university student digs into their studies, like whether they like it or not. I mean, it's not every day that I love reading the philosophy, but we do it to keep the, the values on the front of the mind and to keep the intellect fresh, like Thoreau at Walden Pond. He said, in the early morning, I bathe my intellect in the stupendous and cosmogonal philosophy of the Bhagavad Gita, you know, mm -hmm. because he was studying with Emerson and Nathaniel Hawthorne and Elizabeth Browning and all those people. And that's, that's the approach is that you get up and you, in the early morning, you bathe your intellect in these ideas, you question life on a daily basis you question what am i here for you you get all of your you polish your mirror as the buddhists say every morning and then you meet life and it's remarkable it, it's a very slow it's like hair growing but after six months or a year if you do it in a dedicated way um, you notice that you have much better self-governance you're much less a victim of the changing mind and uh all many other you have energy you you're much more productive um more efficient and you know this is what we do with our study classes uh here in texas and my my colleagues do in the world and um, i have a colleague in there in san francisco actually and um and now there's e-learning you can do the whole three-year program and watch it um how swami taught it it was recorded his lectures were recorded and that that's a great help but it's where, effort where yeah. can people where can people find that vedantaworld.org um, if you go to the study courses tab on vedantaworld.org you can see the e-learning course and it's it's amazing i'm doing it and i'm doing the e-learning course after doing the the real the course in the ashram multiple times uh, i've spent about a decade in the ashram and even some of the lectures on the e-learning course that I'm watching, I'm sitting in the room because occasionally he'll remark to me something, you know, <laughs> right. and well, still, and still well, it's just amazing. Yeah. The thing that's coming to mind is, is one of the concepts within Vedanta that I, f I find so fascinating. And, and um, Swamiji has a book called The Holocaust of Attachment. And yeah. I remember you telling me 
uh, a, a little um, anecdote about the the title and you feeling like it was uh, pretty dramatic and, yeah. and his response being like, it is dramatic. That's yeah. right. Um, and and on the concept of attachment being it being very much like a, I think in in many ways and you brought up Satori our view on salvation from an Eastern or Western sense can be perceived as a, as a moment a before and after and and something that Vedanta um, talks about as a philosophy around a you know, attachment or detachment is attachment is like a virus that you can just recatch. And I totally. absolutely know that th that's true for me. I can be at a lunch with friends uh, and feel <laughs> going into it that I'm uh, I'm in a, a strong intellectual place, and then completely catch it like a cold yeah. because of someone's <laughs> uh, success that I have um, jealousy over or something yeah. that is that shifts or alters this future that I had built for myself. And it probably happens once a week where there's, there's this psychological pain or death of like, no, this future that I had is now being, yeah. is now being altered in a way. And I was completely attached to this imaginative, uh, talk about the weakness in that strength of, of imagining, uh, a future. And that's, um, and in waking up each morning and reflecting on, um, even just reading two pages of that book and putting it down and reflecting on it for 10 minutes is, is somewhat of a, a helpful inoculation from, from that virus that I, uh, if I go, if I go three or four weeks of not thinking about this, um, I'm not reflecting on the morning, then I, it is for sure. I'm going to get a cold. Hmm. Wow. Beautifully said. And yeah, I mean, Swami actually has given talks called the virus of attachment. So you're, you're right on it. That's it. Well, the, the other thing that, that I, I'm reflecting on when you said, when we talked about that's the work and, um, and that, you know, if two people show up, if no one shows up, that is the work. I think that is, um, I have thought about that story so many times since, since mm -hmm. we chatted about it. And and one of the things that I realized is the case for me and, and potentially for many others uh, in, in 2019 is the work that we're doing is it's so rarely self-justifying. It is always a symbol or a bridge to some other thing we want. And, and therefore, like a bridge, it is so transitory. It is just when you're there, you know you're not supposed to be there that you're supposed mm -hmm. to be somewhere else and whether it is building a startup and and it being a shortcut to some financial windfall or doing xyz because it's going to lead to this other thing that you really want maybe it's yeah. credibility or or admiration whenever it is whenever the work doesn't is not self-justifying it's you you look around and you're like shit i'm on a bridge yeah and, and i cannot you you know did, as they do, say do not build a house see, upon. um did you see robert smith's uh commencement speech at morehouse uh, no i didn't but uh, yeah you emailed me about this speech oh my uh, god what tell me uh, a little bit so, this this was the, tell me the story tell me the story yeah so just it's mind-blowing you'll you'll love it watch the whole thing but basically um He's, uh, I don't know exactly what he does, but I, I believe he's a very successful investor at, out there in the Bay Area. Um, 
anyway, he's a billionaire and, and all that. And he was the commencement speaker at Morehouse this year. And um, long story short, he announced that he said the class of 2019 is mine. And I am going to relieve my family is going to relieve all of your debt. So mm -hmm. um, he he paid the, he's paying off it's like forty million dollars or something he's he's paying off all their debts to give them a start. But what what yeah. blew me away, which is re relevant to this um, talking about work, I, I actually have the quote in front of me. I'm going to read it to you. He said in his commencement speech, he said, "You need to know that nothing replaces actually doing the work." The usual scenario is that successful entrepreneurs spend endless hours, days, years toiling away for little time, little pay, and zero glamour. And in all honesty, that's where the joy of success actually resides. Mm -hmm. Greatness is born out of the grind, so em embrace the grind. But he's saying, and then he gave the example of himself working in a lab um, doing whatever research he did for years um, in windowless labs, he says, "In that that in that work is is the success. That's it. And it's not it's not later, but that's when you are completely free of yourself. But look, I mean, the key thing to understand is the only way this works is if the motive for the work is unselfish or selfless. Then the work becomes uh, a refuge." Mm -hmm. What we pollute our work with is selfish motives, egocentric motives. So you may be like, whatever, I have a startup company, I'm, I'm releasing an app, like, I, that's what it is. We want to make a billion dollars. Great, that's fine. But there must be some higher ideal that's slightly more socially conscious than just that. We're not saying that you shouldn't get rich. But you, Vedanta recommends that there should be some circle of, of benefaction larger than ourselves. That liberates us from the, the mind's constant attention on the fruit of the action. Having, so you do the work just as you're doing it, but with the higher ideal, like how can I be of service? And it doesn't have to be save the world and feed all the children of the planet. It can just be we want to have the most on-time delivery for the convenience of our customers, you know? Mm -hmm. Now, but the truth is, the higher it is, the less it has to do with your ego, the more the, the work is a refuge. The more you are liberated in the work, which is why so many people are, 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 are interested in this because people are realizing that it's empty to just pursue my bank balance and, and my power quotient, you know? Mm -hmm. That it's tiring and agitating and not satisfying. Um, there are so many people talking about it. David Brooks just has a new book out about two mountains and how when you get to the top of the mountain of success and whatever, you realize that it's empty. And then you have to start finding a purpose that transcends yourself. You know, mm -hmm. um, This is hardwired into us because our nature is infinite. Our nature is to go beyond this limited individuality. And, and this is something that... Um, takes a long time to get your head around, but it is the truth. You are not James. I am not Joseph. It, we are not limited to these individual body, mind, and intellects. And the, none of us will rest content until we transcend ourselves and reach uh, back to our original nature, which is infinite, eternal, all-pervading. So the work that we do, if it can help us to get off the mark, 
of of that ego um it's almost like the wind of of the self as it were gets behind you and starts pushing you and you want more work you look for you're not in like a, a workaholic way but you look forward to the next piece of action that you get to to participate in so in that way uh true service is is the highest luxury and once you get a taste for it you won't be able to go back to mere selfish living well i i've i've often thought that our our underlying that our our ultimate pursuit is connection and yeah. and it's um then the question is well why is that our ultimate pursuit and i think in chatting with you today it's um a potential answer is because there was a point in which we well we are connected and that is a uh that is as simple as just looking at how you you take one of us put them in space and uh, yeah. take them out of the environment and you cannot survive therefore you obviously depend every moment on your environment much less depend on your parents for the provision of life and the grandparents and uh, yeah. generations before them um to to see think in 30 seconds how interdependent we we truly are mm. but in that pursuit of connection um it is you know the the big bang is uh this um theory of of this incredible explosion that um as as alan watts often says uh or often said that the big bang is not something that just happened 13.2 billion years ago and then it stopped 100 million years in we are the big bang it is still happening and we just happen to be 13.2 billion years into it. it this is you look around and this is the big bang and in a very physical um and in somewhat rational sense we that means that that we were one and um and maybe what is powerful about these concepts for certain people is they hear it and and they remember and in a sense we have been dismembered from one another and and hearing these concepts hmm. internalizing them is is a form of of remembrance wow wonderful well um man the uh i could uh spend hours on this with you and i know that i will but um i feel like that that might be enough for today um joseph and and sure. i i am so thankful for our paths crossing and um and i, I really appreciate the work that you're doing with uh, with vedanta academy and and vedanta institute houston um and where can people find more information about uh i know you said vedanta uh, org for for the e-learning is that right Yep, for the e-learning and for the ashram in India, and people are always welcome to visit there. Um, we're what in Vedanta. Yeah, I'm in Houston, uh, VedantaHouston.org. Uh, they can reach out. We're on Instagram at VedantaHouston. We're going to be doing some some videos this summer as we travel around. We're about to go traveling with Swamiji for a couple of months. Um, so yeah, they they can reach out to uh, any of those avenues. What are well. some of the events coming up that people can uh, can attend? to listen to Swamiji? 
Oh yeah, great. So um, yeah, if people happen to be listening from London, um, there's there's a seminar there um, on June fourth. Uh, Sunandaji has his Swamiji's daughter disciple is also an amazing teacher. She has lectures there. Um, we're going to be there, so I'd be happy to meet anyone there. Um, in the states in September, um, Swamiji will be uh, in San Diego. Um, you can go to VedantaLA.org for that. My colleague Glenn Callahan and, and Natalie Callahan are out there organizing that. And uh, of course, Sunandaji's retreat at Calamigos Guest Ranch and Beach Club, which I believe I'll be seeing you at. Um, I hope. I th yes, I think so. Yeah, that's in September. Um, there's a bunch of things. He's going to be in New York, Toronto, Detroit, and we're going to have Sunandaji here in Houston. So anybody could just email me um, about any of these things. Um, and um, yeah, there's, there's a lot of options now, especially with e-learning. Well, thank you so much. Um, it is, uh, this conversation is, is one of many that I've appreciated from our, uh, our interactions, Joseph. It's, uh, you blew my mind today and, and mm -hmm. I think that'll be the case for many listeners as well. Well, thanks brother. And I look forward to doing it in person, um, with, uh, when we, when we get together, maybe in, in the Bay area sometime. And I just want to say I'm a huge fan and, uh, as you know, and, um, I really think this is, in terms of doing work for the world, I think this is an awesome thing you're doing. And also for uh, those of us who get to be on the podcast, it's really the questions you ask are um, amazing. And, and really, I've been thinking about them a lot, um, which has been a good exercise. And uh, just knowing you and how you are in your life and, and how you talk to people and, and always are asking um, uh, probing questions in, in even normal conversation. I, I think you've really found your swadharma, as we say in Vedanta, with your, your, your own nature, and it's awesome to see. So I'm, I'm well, happy to be a part of it. Well, speaking of the self-justification of, of the work, where it's not <laughs> yeah. uh, for you know, some other um, you know, uh, destination, this, is, this podcast might be the most uh, self-justifying. And I can't, I cannot... I cannot articulate how empowering it is to do something where the work itself is uh, just justifies itself, and it is. Um, you know, this podcast has been met with uh, with uh, criticism of it being too philosophical or too uh, spiritual or too psychological or too uh, woo woo or too just out there. It's it has been um, it has been something where you know it. I I don't even look at the the uh the data and and it just whenever i publish an episode i'm basically forced to you look at the the analytics of downloads and i just it's one of these things it's one of the rare things in my life where i've just not cared about mm. uh about what it could lead to because it has felt even one or two episodes in it just felt so uh, it was so interesting just it felt like it was in a groove of of I guess the only way I've been able to try to articulate it just it justified itself uh, to where <laughs> I just didn't care uh, about any of the other things uh, like I would have I would have cared about if this was some you know entrepreneurial venture. Uh, instead, it just is a fun chance to have conversations with such uh, fascinating people like yourself. So, thank you That's for supporting awesome. it, Joseph. My pleasure, man. I love All it. All right, chat with you soon. All right, James.
Hey, friends and listeners, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you want to hear more of these types of conversations, go over to your favorite podcast app and hit subscribe or leave us a review. Good or bad, we love hearing from people that that appreciate this type of conversation and want more of it. You can also follow us on Twitter at GoBelowTheLine as well as see in our Twitter bio our email address for you to shoot us a note on any suggestions of guests or topics that we should cover. We read every single one, so thank you for those that have already sent those in. That's it for us today. We will see you next time on Below the Line. Below the Line is brought to you by Straight Up Podcasts.